everybody, and welcome back to the Seeking Play podcast. I'm Dr. Jane Hessian. My name is Ronan Healy. Just a reminder for listeners at home that you can also watch our videos on Spotify and YouTube. This can be especially useful as a number of our guests throughout the season built out their answers using Lego. In today's episode, we were joined by the fantastic Pat Kane. Pat is a writer, musician, futurist, curator, consultant, activist, author, and partner. He is also one half of the iconic pop duo Hue and Cry, along with his younger brother, Greg. Pat is the author of Play Ethic and its forthcoming sequel, Superplay. With a long and varied career in media and arts, Pat consults and speaks globally. Pat was and is a lead campaigner for Scottish independence and co-initiated co the political lab Alternative Global. Having rewatched Pat's interview, we picked out a number of quotes that we really enjoyed that we would like to share with you today. Play is an indication of your autonomy and self-determination. Rather than think about creativity and innovation, go into the scholarship of play. Realize how important it is for your employees to have a zone of proximal development. Adult playfulness is about retaining a certain amount of freedom within the society that you are in. Um, for listeners, uh, we have um, three books up on screen here. Um, one is Pat's, it's Play Ethic. And the other two are, are more specifically around uh, economics and the, the future view of, of capitalism. Um, so the second book is called Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative? And then the third book is Capitalism on Edge. And as we were reflecting on um, the episode, we started to think that Pat's book could very easily sit within uh, an economics um, thread, because in his book, I think he foreshadowed um, a lot of the things we're seeing now in terms of from a, within organizations like an emphasis on a four day week. So really placing an emphasis on, uh, you know, being at home uh, or, or, you know, work life and home life uh, and also greater emphasis on maternity leave and paternity leave for those who are working. But but even from a, um, a you know, work and in life perspective, um, there is universal basic income and there's now we have bursaries for artists to try and, you know, continue uh, giving them just enough to survive and to continue their creative endeavors um, and just even greater emphasis on um, on preschooling. Uh, um, and a lot of these things, Pat doesn't sometimes specifically call it out, but as we were reflecting it feels like it does sit and we didn't say this to Pat Ho Pat if you're watching we hope this is uh, okay to, to bring your book within this uh, economic thread because if you haven't read Pat's book it's not just about play in organizations it is it, it really will help you playfully uh, imagine um, an alternative or or an adaptation to uh, our current economic model so um we really enjoyed the book obviously we're huge fans of, of pat's work and we uh, we're sure you're going to enjoy this podcast as well enjoy everybody take care thank you okay good morning you are very welcome to the seeking play podcast we're very seeking excited. Seeking play, that's all we ever want to do. So I know, I know. 
we're very excited to have you this morning. We can't wait to chat mm -hmm. all things play with you. So look, we've a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm going to delve straight in. Um, Pat, can you talk to us about what you were like as a kid? Uh, I was a very lonely kid, actually, and uh, always my, my first memory is of crying inconsolably, surrounded by a circle of people who couldn't console me, and me somehow hovering above that scene, looking down on it. Uh, and this was my failure to obviously be part of the games that were surrounded surrounding me. Um, I spent a lot of time um, with my Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein books, uh, living in a kind of science fictional future, occasionally going downstairs to watch Space 1999 and Thunderbirds and coming going back up again. Nice. And, and, uh, and I think probably only really learning how to sort of play with others when I got to university, which was which was all kinds of play, you know, drinking play, intellectual play, scholarly play, any kind of play you might imagine. So, yeah, so I was kind of, I was a very private player uh, and a Johnny No Mates, but I think that also has its uh, resource and muscles that it develops for self-sustaining, mm -hmm. being self-sustained by your own imagination. So yeah, that's what I would say. I was I came out of. Could I could I infer that the the glasses have been inspired by? Is it brains? Was it brain <laughs> <laughs> on the top? A wee bit. <laughs> a wee bit. Yes, you you you've inferred very well. Oh, and this is probably <laughs> this is probably also the beginning of my my self conscious cyborg existence because I always loved the idea that when brains took his glasses off. He was kind of slight, a bit of a dullard, but when he puts his glasses on, yeah. information is transmitted into his cranium and he suddenly <laughs> okay. becomes an... Now, I mean, how prophetic is that? Chat, GPT, <laughs> yeah. AI, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, nothing... Obviously, a, a, a childhood spent solipsistically with my science fiction influences has been a perfect preparation for 2023, so... Absolutely. Prime Minister for, for the now. And I think that's a relatively good segue to consider, um, you know, during your childhood, are there any bumps bruises, scrapes, breaks, or dangerous adventures that can tell an interesting story of your childhood, but that you think contribute to your identity as an adult now? Well, I, I do remember one very vertiginous tree swing, which when, when I think about it at the time, actually it's near to my home. And I remember looking at it, I looked at it a couple of months ago and I thought, what the hell did we think we were doing? <laughs> um, you know, many scores of feet above the level that we should have been throwing ourselves into the void, unsupervised, unsupervised, no helicopter parents hovering mm. around, mm. Um, uh, being injured, absolutely open yourself out to injury, not quite predation, although mm. there, were, there were a few gangs roaming around in my youth, but certainly <laughs> opening through play, you know, opening yourself up to injury, testing yourself. Uh, the rough and tumble aspect of it being completely, and I, and and I remember that as a personal moment of bravery, which I've not really been able to su sustain since. But obviously, I have a context for it now in terms of all the angst about child development and mm. and the way that we are not allowing kids to develop their resilience and their and their self determination and their capability uh, by having by mon monitoring them too much in, in in urban environments. So that's something I can I can certainly remember. Um, and a lot of it would be um, games with friends who I managed to make through playing the game. 
So mm. sort of nerd, nerdiness as a way to kind of build uh, friendships. And, and that, would, that would be nerdiness around comics or it could even nerdiness around board games. Um, and I was just before uh, the kind of intensity of video games. So I actually sort of missed out a lot on computer games. Mm. But mm. Our, our games were, you know, the, the capacity of children to project fantasy upon reality or to turn reality into something else purely by acts of imagination mm. um i was i was always very fertile with that and sometimes too fertile for my pals so that often you know sent me back into johnny no mates land <laughs> um but i've always had a very very active imaginative life it's always been a it's always been sustaining through all the breaks and bumps of adolescence of being educated in an overly formal way etc mm. etc i mean to uh, to recall it quite specifically i remember being belted given six of the best oh, okay. uh, for, being, for being too articulate in an, in an english class or being too performative how dare um, you and I, and, I, and I straightforwardly thought modernity is rubbish look at the state of this i'm being <laughs> slacked I'm being thwacked for being an extemporizer and an improviser. That can't mm. be right. Mm. So that would that's that's a that's a moment you've elicited from me in a therapeutic manner. Thank you very much. I hope it was a safe enough space for you, Pat. It's <laughs> fine. I feel good. I feel good. <laughs> so moving to now, Pat, could I ask you about adult playfulness and what does this mean to you, adult playfulness? Yeah. Well, it means something very direct to me as a working musician. So I go up and literally play for audiences 50 to 100 times a year. Um, but it's what's one of the interesting things straight away to say about adult playfulness is that it has a distance from the kind of formative playfulness that mm. we have as children. So we often find ourselves as adults playing in quite formalized situations and, mm -hmm. and situations that have strong conventions around them or that follow tight rule sets you know with so so sport as the classic example of of, of adult play um so and so doing a gig turning up having this relationship with your audience having this repertoire of songs mm -hmm. so often it's play as wriggle room mm -hmm. or it's play as reinterpretation of something that people have a very strong expectation of um, and that's an interest. That's interesting to think about in terms of what, what what does play mean? Does it mean when you're older? Does it mean to have a certain amount of re retain a certain amount of freedom within the conventions of the society you're in, so that you you feel like an agent, mm -hmm. you feel like an an intending, creating, autonomous being? Because it's very important for us to feel that way for our kind of essential mental health. Mm. Um, and so, therefore. You know the playfulness I do every other every other week. You know with 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 the band Hue and Cry going since going since the late eighties, is a, is a playfulness with familiar objects. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so you do an old song that has been sung thirty years ago, and that you update it for two thousand and twenty three, or you realise that what it was singing about is was anticipating something in your own life or in or in, or in public life. Um, I think, and I think also as well, uh, the last thirty years would would see that adult play is often gamified play or gameplay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think what I think we have now is a, is a gamer's civilization. Yeah. Uh, it's and it's global. It's multinational, mm -hmm. it and it happens in in real time at various different mm -hmm. levels, from your phone to the console to sometimes people costuming in real life, playing mm -hmm. kind of LARP games. But I think we have a, I think we have a generation. 
whose way of seeing the world, ontology, posh word, epistemology, mm-hmm. posh mm-hmm. word, but whose way of seeing and acting in the world mm-hmm. is used to seeing uh, um, seeing a world conjured up through a rule set or through a story or, an, or a narrative, and for them to live in that world as in mm-hmm. with the same kind of intensity that they live in the non-game world with their families and their friends and their mm. workplaces and their other technologies. So I think that's a massive sensibility and I think it's I think it's constantly shaping everything you know from politics to how we do technology uh, to how we even think about the planet how we think about the future mm. so that's to me another aspect and then the, and then the other aspect of adult play let's let's deal with it you know is, is adult play sounds like something from the porn sector right yeah. there's, 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 there's no way around that yeah um, and but I think what's interesting is that uh, we are in a very profoundly playful sexual moment with the whole question about trans and different constructions of identity. I mean, there's the, yep. you know the idea of being self-creating and malleable mm-hmm. is is moving from the margins to the centre of concern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's 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 sort of um, it's a bit. We know that play is a canary in a coal mine for various things, but to see gender in play, I think, mm. points to another another frontier of how people are um, on a, on a long-term civilizational narrative towards determining themselves and shaping themselves and for and being creative with themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so that's that's a shift in adult play which is the, the, the profound moments of self-creation are yeah. moving from the artistic realm the bohemian realm the psychedelic yeah. realm to the to the center of life um, and and I think that's powerful, and I think it's a deep, deep cultural logic that we're we're all having to kind of deal with. And I sensed was happening when I wrote the play ethic book in two thousand and four, but I think it's accelerated on a number of fronts okay. just now. Um, and so adult play, I think, you know, and then the other bit of the adult play is financial players. I mean, it's interesting when I was doing the book and I was looking at the sort of social semantics or the etymology of play and who dis, who defines themselves as a player well a player mm. is as a sexual player can be a person who plays yeah. the field in that sense but also someone who's um ag- aggressive and and financial practice and aggressive in financial and financial markets and someone who takes is who's a self-conscious risk taker with other people's money sometimes their own sometimes other people's money so and also there is an element of the player that um i think is developing but is generally adult male play to be a player is often mm-hmm. to be regarded as someone who in in one sense of the word and we know how complex play is as a principle of adaptation but in one sense someone who um uh, break moves fast and breaks things yeah and, and asks questions later and that's often tied with a kind of disruptive male testosterone mm-hmm. phallic kind of kind of process but it that doesn't need to be the case so i think i think adult play is this is a zone a multiple of zones that's opening up for people in terms of this fundamental logic of self-determination and self-creation coming from the artistic fringes to the center of everybody's everyday life and 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 like there, there was just so much in that but but i think uh part of our you know our existence is is to legitimize adult play like you've done and just see the broad spectrum of playfulness even down to as you you so beautifully articulated identity and 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 sexuality and and uh, gender i mean like everything is up for play everything is in play um and uh yeah thanks for that answer like that was that was fantastic mm-hmm. um it, like 
in in the work you do, and we were definitely going to get to, to <laughs> Human Cry. Um, I'm banned from uh, singing Labour of Love. Yeah, uh, you are. Yeah, yeah you banned. are. <laughs> totally banned in the house. I like. I, so we'll get there, okay? Because we definitely want to talk about Human Cry. Although I have a set, I have a feeling it may erupt at some point. But then you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll just bust that into song. Oh my goodness. Uh, if if you allow happens. me, you have him warned. If you I... allow me, all right. Let's, we're considering it. But how do you take your work seriously, but also not too serious? I mean, if mm. a lot of people would think artists, it's overly playful, but there has to be a serious element to what you do, and, and irrespective of any work anybody does. But there's a serious side of things, but a playful side. How do you balance that? Well, the great New York theologian James Carr says the thing about play is that it, it takes everything seriously. This mm. is the point of play. Mm. If everything is in play, if everything is, is infused with a spirit of possibility and openness, mm -hmm. then nothing falls falls down the trivial serious divide. You know, mm -hmm. there's no dichotomies being made here. And I, I mean, I'm just, I'm very philosophical. Just forgive me, I'm quite philosophical about the way I generally think about play. But Carr's in this brilliant book called finite mm -hmm. and infinite games yeah. talks about the finite game as the win-lose game as the kind of the tennis game and the infinite game as the game that is, is a learning process and also you even change the rules to get more people to play the game with you mm -hmm. so that's what the infinite game is so the finite game is a win-lose game an infinite game is a, a, a win-win game and uh, you know an infinite game looking at the uh, an adult life um mm -hmm. where a lot of the invitation to us as modern adults is to is to get involved and be engaged and bring more of ourselves to a circumstance or to a job, bring more yeah. of our knowledge, bring more of our feeling, bring more of our sensibility. I think one of the radical things about thinking about this in terms of playfulness, as opposed to sort of duty or company culture or well-being, but to think mm -hmm. about it in terms of playfulness and play is that play is tied to freedom. James Carr says it beautifully. If you must play, you cannot play, i.e. Mm. if you're compelled to play. And this is what's often called sort of game, gamification in some areas. But if you're in, if you are say you must play, you know, Spiel Max Frei is never going to be over the gates of a of a of a terrible concentration camp because it doesn't work. You mm. cannot be commanded to play. Play is a, is an indication of your autonomy and your self-determination. And so therefore, it's a kind of a test of your modern, busy, over-compromised, over over-complexified life. Um, to, to what extent do I feel in play vis-a-vis -vis this process of, or, or that process? Mm. Um, and so I think that's what it indicates. I think it indicates um, a desire for freedom. And then I think what it can also push for, uh, and there's kind of advances and retreats in this, but I think it can push for what, uh, again, uh, Vygotsky, the, the Russian educator, called the zone of proximal development. Mm. Uh, the zone of proximal development is the spaces around you that you secure from your environment within which you can test out possibilities without them being fatal or injurious. Mm -hmm. That's the play zone. So to generate a play zone around yourself is not always easy. Some people some people have a mm. fantastic capacity. Me as a wee boy with an overactive imagination had a fantastic capacity to generate a play zone without much effort. Mm. Sometimes it needs to be more institutional and yeah. structural. And mm. then sometimes even infrastructural and macroeconomic and macro-social. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I used to love all the stuff that was happening um, and I think it's interesting where it's gone with Google when Google said there's a 20% rule. So so one day of your week, you get to play yeah. with your job. 
Mm. And then that went into Google X, which was we are going to have ambitions for the thing that you do as a software engineer, which is exponentially greater than you ever thought that you would that you would have. So it so it went from it went from a kind of a structure enabling play to a kind of massive game of play. So that's still an interesting process. Yeah. And then and then the other thing that I get myself involved with when I talk about you know the power of play for people is is big big old fashioned stuff like shorter working weeks mm. and and um universal basic services or income or what that points to as a kind of strata of security of mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. from which a massive amount of play can happen or a massive amount of risk taking can happen because certain things have been secured for you and again that goes all the way back to stuff I'm sure we, we both know about, which is think one of the things people get wrong about understanding play is that they think that it's just a hurtle into the void. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's a relationship between risk and security. It's a calibration mm -hmm. between risk and security. Uh, and, and developmental healthy play it has the, the lion cubs frolicking on the savannah with the mom and dad at the perimeter protecting that space so that the development can happen. Absolutely. And I think that that sort of persists into, into kind of adulthood. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a beautiful phrase by the, um, the the political theorist Tony Jute when he says the reason why you have a predictable welfare state is so that people can live unpredictable lives. Yep. Yep. Mm. And I think so that so so but that I, I it's I see that within the context of who are we as players, as mm -hmm. in to what extent do we um, give ourselves as animals and demand and secure spaces within which we have optionality and we have options to act and live. So I think your place is profound as that, in my viewpoint. There's so much in that. I would say, first of all... Too much. No, no. Actually, we're going to stop there. We've had enough. <laughs> we, I we, understand. <laughs> we have um, friends uh, working in multinationals and, uh, uh, you know, Google and Meta and, and a couple of other, but they actually have never been informed of what is play and why do we play? And it feels like they're just missing the context of this environment, highly, you know, a lot of funding, a lot of money has gone into designing this, these, um, these buildings and, and the, you know, intent behind it, mm. but they miss that piece. So that, that's one thing we find is uh, if there's any multinationals out there, you've got to explain to people what is play, why, why do we play, and then get out and play, I think is a point. But also in terms of your space and time, uh, oftentimes when we're speaking with our, our clients, or potential clients, um, who would be described as they're the leaders. And oftentimes it's the attributes of a leader. You need to be this type of leader and that type of leader. And we're just saying to them, let's put attributes aside. There's a million and one books about attributes. Can you create space and time for your people? Mm. And it's a big, it's a nice reframe in terms of, and then we say, okay, and in that, can you play with concepts? So yeah, you just, uh, I mean, so many other points we mm. could, we could go down, but we, we won't, but again, but, yeah. But the thing, the thing that excites me about play science at the moment mm. is that there's, there's so many results coming in that say, if you're going to be concerned with the, the playful dimension of your colleagues or your corporation or your, or your workforce, Mm. Um, then you're, you, what you're dealing with is fundamental human nature, and yep. and it's fundamental because it's adaptive. Yep. You know, one of the one of the great things that comes through from a, a, a guru that we both share, uh, the neuroscient, the late neuroscientist Jack Panksepp, when mm. he looks at his range of basic emotions, seven basic emotions: mm. fear, anger, panic on the downside, mm. and kind of curiosity, 
care and play on the upside and mm -hmm. and then lust somewhere in the middle irradiating everything else we'll not deal with lust at the moment we dealt with that a few minutes ago um but just to take those those three against pairing against each other mm. um it, it's 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 exciting for me to be able to kind of sit down with people and say if you want to deal with the evolved human nature of the humans in your organization here's a repertoire look at this repertoire yeah. um and, yeah. and, and figure out how you're going to operate across this repertoire but but realize that things like care and play Mm -hmm. uh, response abilities, as I often call it, not just responsibility, but response abilities mm. are there, are bolted in to you, your employees as as a human species, as sapient species rather than mm. anything else. And I think that begins to kind of anchor quite deeply um, a, lo a lot of the kind of contingent requirements. We want a better performing workforce, so we want our, our workforce to be more responsive mm. to conditions, or we want them to be generating more ideas. My suggestion would be, you know, rather than think about creativity and innovation and the usual routines of that and the usual yeah. th thought exercises and brainstorming exercises of that, go into the scholarship and the science and the evolution and the neuroscience of play and, and realize how important it is for your, your uh, employees as a human species to have a, a zone of proximal development, to have, a, to have it to be able to get out of niches uh, by waste what would look like wasting energy and time exploring possibilities. And also, crucially, um, as um, Bateson and Martin talk about it in their, their, their big book, the playfulness of it. You know, yeah. there has to be there has to be a point at which it's not tied down to outcomes, that it happens in a space that's generally self-determined. And I, I've, I've often thought that the organisation that, bet, that bets on human nature in that way is is the one that's going to realize as yet undreamt of possibilities mm -hmm. for their workforce. What does what does Walt Whitman say? Do I contain multitudes? Very well, then I contain multitudes. That's yeah. that's what that's what I have. Play is the key in the lock to the multitudinousness of your employees, if that's what you want. And I would suggest post AI, post GPT, mm -hmm. uh, the 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 routine and the repeatable is something that fewer and fewer people are going to be dealt with and if you, and then the question then the fabulous question is well what is the what is the unrepeatable that is the human and what is the idiosyncratic that is a human again to think about play in a multidisciplinary way is to get at idiosyncrasy absolutely I, I think i think that's probably one of the only routes to do that and and and, and finally on this point um the wonderful thing about evolutionary theory and play is that it is that it does it does say that healthy developmental play depends on a good ground of play, a, a, a mm. structure, an enabling structure. Now, yep. that's what organisations are supposed to be yeah. able to do, is be mm -hmm. enabling structures for mm -hmm. flourishing creatures. The play, uh, the play scholarship, uh, not in organisation theory, but in evolution and neuroscience, provides so much res resource for uh, better organisations, in my view. Mm -hmm. I, 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 again, yeah. so much. But but to, to to bring it back to the workplace and uh, the work that we would do is that oftentimes the the this time this this you know whether it's an offsite or a half, full day or a half day it's oftentimes layered over with a, a framework or a methodology so it's we're going to do service design today or design thinking today or lean six sigma today so it's already stripped a piece of human agency away. 
and, 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 and of course it enables particular conversations, but also constrains a particular conversation. And, and it goes back to that play is, a, is an indication of autonomy and emergence that doesn't need to be, you don't need to hold people's hands yeah. with an extra framework or method. Oftentimes it's just pure play without, mm -hmm. and particularly, of course, outcomes are important and we would work with a client with outcomes, but if you work with them more and more, that the outcomes are less tangible and they will be realized further on in, in working with us. And yeah, again, there's so much, I, I feel like that, I feel like that's a podcast in itself with, with, with us. Mm -hmm. um, sure, who's, sure. Who's next? You... Well, yeah, I think what I would maybe like Pat to do now is if he could reflect maybe on his earlier career. So if I could maybe just take you back and if you could think about when you were starting out in your career, is there any advice that you would give to your, your, to your younger self about either being more playful or more serious in the way that, you know, you thought or you interacted with, with, with other people? Sure. I mean, it was quite, it's quite interesting just to tell the story because, mm. um, my my particularly in terms of music i mean i've been i've been jointly conjointly a musician and a writer for the last yeah. 35 years a textual writer but certainly certainly the music thing came out of what i would call post post punk mm -hmm. so punk was three chords and the truth no 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 post punk was all the chords and any truth yes 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 mm. and post post punk which was often then called sort of new pop or sometimes new romantic was how do we take all of that um energy and pluralism and possibility and get a hit record so it was like how do we how do we then take all this sensibility that we've developed and turn it into top five hits or top 10 hits um so that was happening mm. at the same time as through the punk thing was also a, a sense of that the music had a kind of political or social role. I mean, the, the great song of my youth was, that, which I couldn't believe was a hit record, was the Specials Ghost Town, which mm -hmm. was like for, for them a sonic experiment and sort of seaside town reggae that then hit the the the, the Hansworth riots and the Toxteth riots mm. it, 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 just by sheer chance, a bit like a bit like a Martha and the Vandellas dancing in the street, landing at the same time as the Watts riots in 1968. Sometimes these things just happen, but when they, they are incredibly inspiring, um, shipbuilding um, Elvis Costello just at the time of the at the Falklands War. Mm. Um, so the there was an imperative to at that time for me to be an end and sort of entryist I was somewhere between Frank Stevie Wonder and Malcolm McLaren so that was the idea that these were my two polarities yeah yeah, yeah. um and what what that meant is that I didn't often enjoy the carnivalesque nature of the pop process as much as I could have because I was trying to get a message in or I was trying to get a sort of a statement in mm. um and I, I I I some people would looking back would say I got the balance right, you know, with a hit record with the chorus was called Withdraw My Labour of Love, Strike for the Right to Get Into Your Heart, Ain't Gonna Work yeah. For You No More. Well, if you haven't succeeded with entryism with that, then you've, you haven't even, what, mm -hmm. what would success look like, you know? But I would I would honestly look back at that at that period and, and think, I wonder if one could have been a bit more like, like Prince, you know, a bit more polymorphous and perverse, you know, yeah. a bit more sending things out 
to see if they would fail. Whereas I think I was very much in kind of designer pop mode, you know, that I'd mm. gone through gone through the punk thing, gone through the post-punk thing, now wanted to ABC were kind of my template for being the kind of band that I want we wanted Hugh and Cry to be. Right. And and Martin Fry is notorious for saying, I may be wearing a gold lamy suit, but I'm still a punk rocker. You know, so that was that's the kind of the antithesis, the the dichotomy, the contained dichotomy that I, the one thought that one was doing. I think it produced as good art as I could make. Psychologically, incredibly stressful. Trying to kind of trying to kind of bring a, a critical analysis of the current state of affairs yep. into these incredibly trivial and incredibly fun-driven contexts was not easy and often painful and I and, and often I often wasn't as playful internally with it as I should mm -hmm. have been. It wasn't as considerate of my brother not quite understanding what I was trying to do and didn't mm. not bothering to sort of explain it. Um feeling as if was one was uh, one was a kind of a an unguided missile, you know, hurtling oneself into things and smashing them up and seeing what would happen. So looking back on that, I think I've developed post that a kind of a way to it's not so much well-being as well-becoming. You know, well-being mm. implies kind of I'm settled now. I know exactly yep. what I'm doing. Um, uh, the opposite of well-being would be a kind of you know anarchic, uh, taboo-busting nature. I'm somewhere between the two now, and so yeah. after I, I pursue well-becoming rather than well-becoming. Obviously, as, as it has a nice element, it means that you kind of still want to kind of look quite good. You know, you want to be. Do you want to look well-becoming? But it also it's also becoming in the philosophical sense, you know. I mean, yeah. but 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 becoming in a state of wellness is the is the trick. That that's yeah. the, that's the trick is to be able, and that's that gets you into kind of a, a complex systems thinking all the rest of it. But essentially, how how do you contain multitudes, uh, and not go mad, go crazy, get drunk, go into despair, go into mm -hmm. nihilism? How do you sort of contain it within? On a, on a kind of bustling juggernaut going forward that can, that contains all the possibilities of the age, yeah. Uh, so that so there's a there's a there's a thing about playfulness as a coping mentality, mm -hmm. um, that, and there's a there's a lovely phrase that I think comes from I think it might come from Schiller or it might come from Sartre I can't remember, but it's the definition of play that says taking reality lightly. Mm -hmm. That's not taking reality as illusion. And it's not being determined by reality, but it's yeah. taking reality lightly. It's going into reality and by the influx of matter into mind, as Johann Huizinga says in Homer Ludens, making things light, making things malleable, making things movable. Uh, and to some extent, um, that's a, a strong-minded decision. Mm -hmm. It can mm -hmm. come from nature, some combination of nature and nurture. To some degree, it's internal. And to some degree, the external world is becoming more playful. It's becoming yeah. more open. It's it's you know suffused with networks that that generate possibilities rather than institutions that dump them down. Mm. The rate of innovation is incredible. You know, so to some extent, ontologically, the world is becoming more playful. Yeah. And the quick the question is, how do you respond to that? Do you dump it down, like stop it, like King Canute? Mm -hmm. You know, or do you or do you find a way to, um. The, the the posh phrase uh, is adaptive potentiation. Brian mm -hmm. Sutton Smith, and what Brian Sutton Smith means by adaptive potentiation, just break it down. Adaptive it means you're responding to circumstances, mm -hmm. but you're responding by potentiating by being in a place where you can send out prototypes, experiments, live in live in ambiguity, 
which means that you're ready for this increased pace of uh, accelerating pace of change. And I, I mean, it, it's an interesting, this is a real, but a real interesting moment. Uh, we can do both and, I think we should do both and, we should, because we, so we can both develop our adaptive potentiation, mm. our playful selves to cope mm -hmm. with the future. Uh, but who knows how the future may help us cope with itself through AI. And yeah. one of the things that's notable about AI's acceleration recently is that it's playing with itself. I mean, just let's mm -hmm. be straightforward about it. It's called gen mm -hmm. GANs, Generative Adver Adversarial Networks, mm -hmm. um, DeepMind, Go, whatever, whatever you want to look at it, you know, artificial intelligence developed through game, game play and game mechanics. However it is, um, AI's learning like children, yeah. developing through play is is how they are becoming as powerful mm -hmm. and, and, and as assistive to us. Mm. So, so the, the, I mean, uh, this sounds uh, maybe vainglorious and and hubristic, but the century belongs to players and belongs to play. I'm absolutely convinced of that as a way of coping with the overall complexity that humanity uh, uh, generates. Never mind having to kind of do play rather than do consumerism as a yeah. as a response to um, planetary boundaries and material limits. We're going to have to be active active meaning makers uh, uh, rather than passive stuff consumers in order that we get, we actually get out of one bit of our conundrum. Um, again, I think uh, thinking deeply about play and enabling the possibilities of play, mm. that, that being taking reality lightly and joyfully uh, is going to be an essential character trait for the rest of the century, I think. I, it's, a, it's a conversation that had stopped for us. Um, it's... Uh, we think as we hurtle towards greater and greater technological developments and software mediates that ultimately. Um, we had begun prior to COVID talking to um, organizations that are actually developing software just with the kernel of thought that well, how would a playful software development team, how would that ripple through in how they develop the software? Is it more human-centered? Is it more playful? Like, how does that translate into the code itself and then in through society and then society comes back to, to ripple its way back on how we think? It's something that um, yeah, we wrestle with and uh, we're going to continue the, the conversation because mm -hmm. we imagine software developing teams and testing teams actually using this method um, and standing up and being more embodied and moving more. Because it is a societal consideration. It's an imprint on society every time a piece of code gets written and, and gets sent out to the world. It's a very interesting historical question, this. Because mm. when I was writing the play ethic um, in, the, in the years up to 2004 and its release, people were invoking um, open source and agile mm -hmm. programming. Um, and the hacker ethic in, as an inherently sort of a playful approach to um, to software development, you know. So the whole idea of open source was kind of like the open Lego box of, mm -hmm. of parts mm -hmm. that you send out into the public realm. Uh, Linus Torvald sending out Linux just straight from his, his university mm. campus in 1996. And so there was an awful lot of when I was writing 20 years ago about this, there was an awful lot of idealism mm -hmm. about code as a kind of planetary mm. Lego box and commons 
in which people now it's interesting what's happened since then um and it's and it's interesting the way that uh programmer programmer be programmed which was the original ethos of web one went into give me an app to solve me a problem with web two and it's interesting i think with web three i think there's been a, a coming out of various big systemic crisis whether it was the financial crash in 2007 or maybe maybe again the the, the maturing of the gamer generation as a civilization mm-hmm. and the norms the norms that it brings along that i was talking about i mean web 3 is kind of saying is kind of going back to web 1 to a certain degree which is which is to say but at a, a much more ambitious scale i mean it's looking at the ruin of financialized capitalism and saying well, we know how to set up a rule set. Why don't we set up a financial rule set? And 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 also, why don't we make it maybe value different things than are, than are usually valued in the existing financial order, um, mm. which is one of the most interesting aspects of Web 3.0. You might be able to tie the currency to fish stocks or some other commodity or or time or whatever it is. So I think Web 3.0 was was an interesting moment where it was it, where another 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 movement of the dynamism between risk and security that mm. the play captures robust and regenerative structure that generates positive creative activity which is mm-hmm. the kind of the basic play framework has, has sort of come back with 3.0 all the all the playfulness around 3.0 the nfts the crazy monkeys and it, but it feels like we're into another another situation again where what became decentralized is now possibly becoming re-centralized yeah. uh, with the kind of the, the level of compute and it's institutional and financial heft that it takes to sort of do LLMs and GPTs mm. and this way, this wave of AI. Um, and I, it will probably go back again, but I, I don't, I really, I, I am, unless we're into a sort of singularity moment, you know, where the computers play themselves into godhood, I'm, I'm not discounting it. I'm just yeah. sort of saying, there we are. Um, and then, and then I think what's interesting about that scenario, if we're talking about software and organizations, is I think we'll have to reach for science fiction. I'll have to go back to my childhood mm. and go back to the science fiction that uh, out of this crude technology called a keyboard and a piece of paper or a printer uh, imagines how humans live in worlds of their own possibility in sane and orderly ways. So mm. my compatriot, Ian M. Banks, uh, science fiction writer who wrote the culture novels, um, I think, uh, and it's already happening. I mean, Bezos and and Musk name their spacecraft or name their processes after characters in his novels. And I scratch my head because Ian M. Banks yeah. is a is a democratic socialist posthumanist. You know, he he's he he's a he's a kind of liberal progressive singularitarian who who has these books that are all about people who for fun and ironic pleasure change themselves this way and that way have dialogues with vast ais who regard them with a kind of studied studied condescension but but really quite enjoy their limited mammalian ways you know it's it's fun and i but i can see why silicon valley loves e&m banks work Mm -hmm. because it, it, it it the dominant values are not phobia or philia about technology it's mm. sort of irony wit um slightly sort of sexy hedonistic creativity um a kind of a, a kind of liberalism that sort of allows for difference and plurality i mean and i'm no doubt there's a hundred other science fiction writers who have worked this humanistically out at a certain level but mm. i think that's i think that's going to be the next 
big resource. Uh, people people who are science fiction historians are going to be incredibly sort of valuable because they'll be able to sort of point to a novel that's that has that that is humanistically dealing with these playful possibilities. One of which would be that the technology starts to become our play partner rather than just our play tool. Yeah. Uh, and I think, but I think if we can have them as play partners mm. rather than as scary, verbarian, bureaucratic monsters, mm. that's something for software people and organizations to begin to think about. How do we create a, a zone of proximal development, a play space between mm. our agenda, smarts, desires as as intending fully conscious human beings? Um, how do we mesh that with these possibility engines that are about to come into our midst. Mo Goddard has a beautiful, the ex-Google guy says that, you know, how do you, how are we bringing up a child? Are we bringing up these children to gamble, exploit, yeah. conduct mm. wars? You know, think about it as a nurturance moment, as much yeah. as you think about it as a, as a develop, as a programming or a supremacy moment. Mm. And if we're talking about nurturance, we're talking mm. about play, right? Mm -hmm. We need a, a machine Montessori. Yeah. Need to, need you to named it. You yeah. named it. A, Miss, a Steiner Montessori ratio, yes. Amelia. There you, you go. You named it. There well you done. go. Sign us up. Um, okay. So, Pat, I would like to talk a bit about your book. Um, your book, The Play Ethic, a manifesto for a different way of living. Now, we have some excerpts that we're going to. Um, just read out and ask you to unpack. But before I do so, I just want to talk to you about the term play ethics. So, you know, a lot of us are obviously very familiar with the term work ethic, but less so probably with play ethics. So could you talk to us a bit more about play ethic and also its potential implications for organizations and society, please? Sure. Um, I mean, I'll tell you this, the brief story. I, I was in this rehearsal room with a drummer the sweat was lashing off him. We was doing brilliant work uh, and laughing all the way through it. And I said, sir, you have a play ethic, not a work ethic. And I went, why am I saying that? And then I, and then, and then I went and read a bit and realized that uh, there was a famous book by, I just mentioned them, Weber, uh, yeah. called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, which I always thought was the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism, but it's the Protestant ethic. Yeah. And I thought, ooh. So what would be the ethic appropriate to the age of informationalism and, and age of knowledge? Would it be, I first thought it was the new age ethic mm -hmm. and the spirit of informationalism, but then I realized actually, if we call, uh, what's, let's call it the work ethic and the spirit of mm -hmm. capitalism. So that's, let's call it the play ethic and the spirit of capitalism, bigger part. So that's sort of where the, the, it came from conceptually. And it was it was a sort of okay. I'm now going to explore in the way that Weber talked about the Protestant work ethic as the necessary mentality for industrial capitalism to proceed. Mm -hmm. As in, you apply yourself to the machine, you dump down your hedonistic um, anti-clock urges, your, you close down your happy Mondays, and you knuckle down to the mm -hmm. task, believing that work, no matter what it is, no matter how badly it treats you, no matter how much it alienates you, is worth doing. Mm. Two. A situation where in the age of information and knowledge networks, uh, you are invited to participate in your circumstances a lot more. Uh, your thoughts and your feelings and your sensibilities and your creativity is more required of you. Uh, and so what would be the legitimating ethic or what would be the general culture of that? It would be, a, maybe call it a, a new age play ethic. 
uh, I so that so the the the, the, men, the enabling mentality to deal with all these um, um, extemporizing exponentializing machines mm. would be a kind of an artist's sensibility or a child's playful sensibility uh, and so the, so the play ethic attracted people and attracted everybody from educators to advertisers to technologists to government people uh, because it it, it, it it held out the possibility that we could harmoniously go into this next stage of mm -hmm. civilizational economic and technological development you know that we could develop a and also that was also intended to be a bit like emotional intelligence because when people heard emotional intelligence for the first time they thought well i thought intelligence was rational yeah. and what do you mean by emotional intelligence and so i thought the same thing was it was in, implicit in the in the idea of the play ethic as a sort of challenge to the idea of mm. the soul's play day is a devil's work day mm -hmm. you know the the, tri the the triviality of play i thought well let's actually challenge that by saying that play is an is an ethos you know, as a way of approaching the world that is as substantive as as work. Uh, and in the book, oh, I mean, I absolutely get stuck into some people, figures like Gordon Brown, the ex-Labour leader, you know, who would, who would run around saying that work is what gives us dignity and, you know, that jobs are what composes us as human beings in society. And I, and I, my experience at that time, as I was writing the book, was here I am sitting with a with an internet-enabled device and I can go all over the world and I can find people and connect to people that I've never been able to do. What are you mm -hmm. talking about, Gordon? You know, this mm -hmm. we're yeah. at the foothills of an enorm of a completely different society here. There's a famous interview that um Jeremy Paxman conducts with uh David Bowie about the internet, I think about 1995 or 1996. Yeah. yeah. And he's just like, you've no idea what this Absolutely. is going to do to our mm -hmm. fixed ideas of organizations, structures, laws, institutions, cultures. It's going to be completely revolutionary to Paxman's great contempt and disdain. But there we are. Um, so that's so so, mm -hmm. I, so when I was writing the book and, and and trying to pour everything I had into the title of the play, I think I felt as if I was in the early stages of an epochal shift. Really, my sense of that has not been any less lessened over the, the, the last sort of 10, 20 years since mm -hmm. 20 years since the book sort of came out. Um I, I would and I but I would say um it's a lesson that keeps being re relearned. You know, we have mm -hmm. and it's and it's interesting how crisis seems to be the only teacher. Yeah. You know, so mm -hmm. you know how have we got to our four day a week? How have we got to thinking about higher levels of social security? I got a goddamn pandemic, a biological pandemic that drives us into domestic contemplative spaces or th those of us who are lucky to have those and who weren't on the front line re redefining what care, how the importance of care, I think, remember the Panksep uh, emotional primes, care sort of comes came straight back in. But also, I would say uh, that culture of play, which is about self-development and thinking, mm -hmm. I have time, I have free time. Yeah. To be a, a scholar, as they call it, a scholar in Greek, which means someone who is in command of their time. Mm -hmm. So we all became playful scholars, contemplating, watching things we weren't, we didn't usually watch, thinking about our purpose in life. And mm -hmm. the consequence of that has been, you know, changes in the political economy of the society. Uh, for answering a variety of needs, I would say to some degree, answering the needs of play. So a, a play ethos that says hold on a minute i'm going to decide my priorities and collectively you need to support me in my 
desire here to define my priorities is implicitly um, happening and pertaining mm -hmm. with people. I think the play ethic, although it's not been named as a play ethic, yeah. uh, well-being is often the way that we talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think it's I think that element of self-determination that is at the core of play mm -hmm. has come out through as, as one of the consequences of the COVID crisis, the Great Resignation, lying flat, yeah. the jobs the jobs churn, mm -hmm. uh, the desperate the desperate desire for people to come back into office buildings that have been rented for a long period of time and have to sort of pay pay themselves off. That's yeah. going to change. It's bound to change. Yeah. Um, but again, if you're thinking about it as in the context of a play ethic. Uh, you're thinking about this as a rich, orderly fashion, you know, rather than a scrappy, disorderly fashion mm -hmm. or 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 mode of change. That's mm -hmm. what I would like people to be talking about in, in the midst of these um, crises. You know, not 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 um not making the best use of a crisis. I think we can make great use of the COVID crisis and mm -hmm. the general delegitimation of various official institutions of money politics economics etc i think it can be i think play ethic is, could be a good way to make the best of these upheavals yeah definitely and and the book is so extensive and i just want to acknowledge for, for everyone we interview there you're literally like we're meet, we get to meet a hero mm. because as we were going along you know six seven years ago reading what is play why do we play like lego series play you'll get that pretty quickly and we've kind of broken that apart how we practice it is is fundamentally i think different but at the core, it was always, what is play and why do we play? So I just want to acknowledge, like, thank you for the rich, mm -hmm. broad, like, overview that you've provided. And also the optimism. Like, you, in, mm. in no way, having read the book, um, was there, uh, did it feel like you were naive? There was a naivety to, like, all oh, this free time and it's frivolous. It's very much needed. So I just want to, want to thank you. And, and also, on your journey going through the, the research, was there a particular uh, researcher or, or um, a playful thinker that, that really stood out as influential for your, your book? Sure. Um, yes, I mean, there's a few. I mean, certainly there's a guy called Manuel Castells who wrote a, a trilogy called The Age of Information. Um, and he just mapped out all the possibilities of the information age. But at the end of it, he he said, "What is the what is the ethos that we should be adopting for this age?" And mm. he went straight to the S word. Didn't go necessarily go for the P word, but he went for the S word, spiritual. Okay. Uh, and I'm not really spiritual. I'm a bit of a scientific materialist, but I know the space that it denotes. Um, and there's a beautiful phrase um a beautiful definition by Fritjof Capra of spiritual which is which if you go back down to the root of it is breath of life and he's a systems thinker and he's mm -hmm. he's constantly he's interested in how systems are dynamic and change and evolve human systems natural systems but he thinks the, he defines spirit as the breath of life mm. so that is a, is a, that was a kind of a um a junction point to go off into so many different areas and places so certainly thinking about uh, complexity theory, which I'm not going to start talking about at the moment because I'm, I'm partial in my own understanding of it, but the idea that there is play in a system, the idea that there is wriggle room in any system and that that makes the system healthy is to the mm -hmm. extent that things are emergent from it rather than planned from it. So an awful lot mm -hmm. of the complexity uh, literature, um, Stuart Kaufman, the, the theoretical biologist who taught who, who had a who explicitly cites Homo Ludens as, as an ideal in his book at home in the universe, 
Um, but he talks about the concept of the adjacent possible, which is the, which mm -hmm. is the idea that in matter, there is all there is always options for movement of any system, uh, whether it's a, a molecule or a or a or a, or a nucleus or an atom. There's always options for evolutionary change right immediately around anything, which is the wriggle room, the playroom, the play space at the level mm. of mm. at the level of physics and biology. So I was very very I was very pleased to read that. Um, another guy called Brian Goodwin, who was also another complexity theorist who talked about that a lot. Uh, James Cars, which I've, who I've mentioned before, uh, Finite and Infinite Games, gives you a very, very clear definition of how you should think about games whenever you come upon them in mm -hmm. your, your researches. Uh, and also the relationship between a finite game and an infinite game. So a finite game can be at the service of an infinite game, i.e., your infinite game is, is learning knowledge or a martial art or a great artwork. Your finite game is how do I get good at the techniques that enable me mm -hmm. to participate in the infinite game? Mm -hmm. And his thing, the de his definition of evil is an infinite game at the service of a finite game. So all your possibility in life is mm -hmm. aimed at victory, is aimed at supremacy is aimed at domination and subjugation and vanquishing of the other. And he, he immediately says that's fascism. That's what the Nazis were trying to do. And that's been a that's been a powerful mm. heuristic and caution to me as I that just as I go through my, my play researches and consultations and thinkings. But in in life, if I see people pouring all their possibility into the into sheer victory, I know that the, the situation's in big trouble and they're probably in big trouble. And if I see the opposite, if I see people training people, teaching people, conditioning people so that they can extend and extemporize their capabilities, mm -hmm. not only that they stay in this game, but they can see the rule set so that they create new games. I know I'm in a healthy situation. And I, that applies to me all through my life, whether it's music, whether it's consulting to organizations, whether it's coming up with artworks and, and doing curation, for example. Um, the, the, the cast distinction is not just beautiful, but really is a life tool. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would agree. I mean, <clears throat> you, uh, there's times it just switches in my head. Um, this kind of, uh, you can see fear-based decisions or, 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 or individual considerations as opposed to like you're saying this kind of like greater infinite potential of like cheering people on and supporting people and like showing people work like you know just just not being too involved in the self and it's in my head it's like finite or infinite it's just it's a switch and, and that book is yeah. quite short but dense it's it's not one thing you're going to read one time because you read it quick and you think oh there's a book and you kind of think take it as a metric but it's certainly something that you kind of marinate on and you sit back on and you go back over again and you dog ear the book again. So, yeah. Uh, it's a catechism. I, it's a theology and a catechism. It, it I is. Mean, I, I, yeah. But, you know, the, the truth is that he was studying game theory, yep. uh, which is which is you know cut, came out of the Cold War context. And he actually studied that and, and saw there's a sort of savagery implicit in this, which I want to find a way to talk mm. differently about. So it's so it's not um, it's not disassociated from all that thorny gnarly uh, game theory stuff he's he actually reacted to it as a, yeah. as, a as a writer yeah okay mm -hmm. hey, i am going to read an excerpt from your book and i am just going to ask you to unpack it for us okay so yet how exactly do we build our societal playgrounds 
in the age of workers, we collectively asserted our need for respite and recreation, resting resources from the grip of industrialism. In a society where players are the primary agents of progress, we will need a new kind of collective commitment, one that can support the broad spectrum of human activities and purposes implied by a comprehensive understanding of play. Mm. We need the space to play, we need the time to play, and we need the materials to play with. And of course, we need other people around us ready and willing to play too. So Pat, could I get you firstly to elaborate on play space and play time? Please? Sure. Well, um, I think it, this is where the evolutionary theory really helps and uh, even educational theory um, uh, and also the idea that, that, that play um, is a development of the organism. Um, you know, through play, you learn and you become strong and you become capable. Um, so certainly play, play space, I think, is, is fundamental. It's, it's, all, it's a sort of defended commons, mm -hmm. um, whether that's defended by, as I say, the animals on the savannah, whether that's whether that's like a, 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 a physical object in a playground that's well enough built and well enough designed that it doesn't injure but allows possibilities for um, reaction and play. A, a, a box of Lego as a play space, mm -hmm. a little arrangement of materials and in, 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 in spatially, uh, and is, is ontological, makes you think about reality in a different way, makes you think about reality as constructible, reconstructable and deconstructible. Um, play play time is also important um, because it, it, as play functions for early organisms, it, it functions um, in defiance of scarcity. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have the time when you have the time to play, uh, you are not under um, urgencies of food or of, of shelter or of warmth. Uh, whenever um, kids start to play in refugee camps, that's always an indicator that someone has enough surplus or the whole situation is generating enough surplus uh, and, and that the situation is knowable enough that when the children start to play in and with the situation, the general overall health and well-being of the of the community is 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 on a good track. So um if if that's if that account is scientific evolutionary account is correct, then I think it has huge lessons for society and our organizations people pay lip service to learning organizations or to lifelong learning or to or to the educative process what they don't often realize is the playful um seedbed for mm -hmm. powerful learning processes i mean the mm -hmm. most powerful learning processes are playful i mean you can, we can i know we can all quote einstein and we can quote picasso and we we can quote feynman and we can Oh, Andre Game, who discovered graphene, we can we're, we're authorities for allowing people to fart about, and yeah. that being what we were put on earth to do, as, as Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> marvelously said, uh, is is happily legitimated from the highest level. But I think I think the I think the ethology of play, the study of play as a as a uh, a generate a, um, a generator of healthy development in complex social mammals. Mm -hmm. is is inarguable you need play space and play mm -hmm. time and if you if you need it um 
as a social mammal ele elementally and even as a non-human social mammal mm. uh, how much more do we need it and how much more mm. can we refine and develop that playtime mm. and play zone play materials as metacognitive aware supposedly um uh, modern human social animals we we have we have always had uh, the possibility of playfulness and one of the things that history tells us you know whether it's um a young aristocrats inventing board games you know or or the plutocratic patronage of great art you know they are they are the Crats, the Aristotles, those who reserve to themselves the best of the best, mm. have always been very, very playful mm -hmm. because they're sitting on material surplus. So again, that's a very long historical narrative mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um, may seem too long for the average HR person in an organisation or, or, or CEO. But actually, you're on a trip, you're on a journey to, mm -hmm. away from scarcity towards post-scarcity. Um, and even though it's it looks like we're hitting the planetary boundaries within within inventing AI, so we are the fecund species. Mm -hmm. We are the kind of storytelling imaginative species, as um, Harari puts it, and Homo Deus and and Sapiens. So we're on we're on a we're on a roll towards the conditions for play in terms of time, space, and materials mm -hmm. being more and more yeah. available, okay. not less, mm -hmm. more available. So it's it's a kind of it's a kind of civilizational a new civilizational challenge to anybody who's right. sitting trying to figure out how to make the most of their workforce, realize the big narrative that you're on in terms of play mm -hmm. time, play space, and play materials. I really do believe yeah. that. Okay, mm. yeah, I think I was going to obviously you know ask about materials and play people, but I think you've you've covered you've covered it very extensively. Yeah, yeah. they're all they're all bound together. They're all, all bound together, together. definitely. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to read from your book. To be a player is to make a commitment to a kind of fully, uh, to a kind of fully conscious everyday activism that can literally put into play all the structures, routines, accepted roles, and embedded understandings of your life in technology and education, families and communities, businesses and organizations, politics and spirituality, culture and consciousness. So, Pat, in your book, you make a distinction between a worker and a player, and you, you've certainly touched on it. But what is the difference in how they should think of themselves, others that they're around, and their being in the world? What is that kind of distinction? Sure. Sure. Well, I've kind of matured my position from the book a wee bit in the subsequent 20 years. Um, I was writing at the, the, the peak of the new labor moment, and, and I was infuriated that what looked like a set of uh, objective technological and social conditions were being tied down to mm. welfare, to work, were being tied down to the duteous performance of jobs. I mean, it was contradictory because the, the creative industries, you know, were off were also defined in that period. But then again, we can have a discussion about what we mean by a creative industry, whether that's itself a kind of harnessing of deeper processes. So I was I was an, I was on an animus against the idea of worker being what how how we can make the best of this fissile emergent age mm. um and i was on a i was also on a on a mission to sort of re redefine that for player but there's a very crucial part in the book which is about sort of a social uh the social dimension where i talk about the, the what comes after the work life what's terrible about the work-life balance is that it's 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 almost surgically divides you between the work that you don't want to do 
and the life that you do want to live and that there's there's an element of uh, tension or swinging between the two so you live in this kind of fundamentally schizoid existence you know mm. um and i suggested instead um if we can uh, deal with the with the time space and resources question you know if we can get to i mean i was looking at kind of scandinavian society but i was you know which is in trouble for lots of other reasons at the moment, but anyway, take take it as read in the in the two thousands. You know, we were thinking mm -hmm. about Scandinavian social democracy as a kind of platform for possibility. Um, I I I suggested instead of the work life balance, unstable, the play care continuum. Mm. So we have we have two sets of response abilities: play response to people's infinitude, care responses response to people's finitude, uh, brokenness. And so, so that was my idea that it was to kind of was my attempt at being realistic about the relationship between player and worker. Um, the worker, um, you know, it, people might be dispositionally disposed to routine and mm -hmm. to tradition and to uh, conserve hyphen atism. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, I think we know that from the last couple of years and. Western politics and Western society. Some people want to want to sort of get off the bus or slow the bus down, um, and I'm kind of respectful of that. I, I think as a kind of as a response to accelerated times, mm. I can sort of see why people would want to be workers and and give their labour and give their routine to benefit someone else's sense of value, and then be given exactly what they want in their own space. The problem is that the the routines of work often exhaust people so much that they don't necessarily have the resources and the energy mm -hmm. to be fully autonomous in what is the, the the time that they've secured for themselves out of the out of the wage labor the wage labor situation. So I wanted to imagine that we get into a situation where we don't presume that everybody's uh, this kind of Promethean bundle of ambitions and possibilities and energies. This sort of yeah. The sort of assumption of mm -hmm. the creative identity as the normal identity. I wanted to say that's that I think that can be unleashed, but it's not as if you won't be exhausted mm -hmm. or tired or feel as if you've run out of ideas or feel weak in a player's society. So we need the other side of the continuum is care. And I mean care, proper care, proper healing, restoring care. It's not I, I conceived of it, it's not you don't fall down into a safety net, it's a safety trampoline. Mm. You know, and you hit the trampoline and you can be on the trampoline if you wish, but you can use a trampoline to get back up onto the wire. But there's no, I wanted to be realistic about the demands of, of a play-centric, player-dominated society, which I think can can just involve um, a desire for contemplation, a desire for quiet, a desire for repair. Mm. Um, if you have taken risks and they've not gone so well, um, or that you've you've uh, failed and failed better, as Beckett would say, you've you've but you need to kind of go and be in a kind of supported space. So it's it's kind of science fictional in its yeah. assumption. Mm -hmm. It sort of presumes it presumes that people are not worrying about mortgages, housing, food, clothing, heating, electricity, connectivity. There's a sort of fully automated luxury, whatever is sort of presumed by this. Mm. And then the play care continuum as well. If who do we want to be? Who do we need to be to be part of this dynamic? But people who want to be workers, I mean, we one of the things I did subsequent to the book was to do 
a lot of work with social workers in uh, Scotland. Mm. And we, we we did a lot of experiments with them. In Denmark, a social worker is called a social pedagogue, a social teacher. So there's a whole relationship there between knowledge and care and fragility that is not the same as a social worker. And we asked them, well, how would it feel if you were a social player? And many of them laughed and said, well, if I was being regarded as a social player, you know, I would never get invited. Or I would get invited to different parties, never mind not get invited to many more parties. <laughs> but, you know, they were... It was that So that was really a, an education in what people regard as ethical work. Mm -hmm. um, and and what was fascinating about that and what was educative about that was the uh, which which the neuroscience backed up for me the Pankstep neuroscience backed up to me when he identified you know care as being a strong emotional evolved nexus mm -hmm. alongside play alongside the darker emotions of anger fear and and panic so i can i can see how um work as a, a kind of the power of routine and reliability mm -hmm. yep uh, can fit for people and also can fit for society. I thought that care was really what the routine part of work mm -hmm. was really about. You know, if you want to be uh, present and available for people to sustain them through trials and tribulations, what is it? Is it, are you a worker in doing that or are you a carer in doing that? Similarly, mm. when you're applying your ingenuity to a task uh, and your ingenuity is surplus to requirements, is that contained by work or should we be begin to call that play? But mm. I'm slight, I've slightly moderated my position. I think people, some people who want to be workers are emotionally wired for it. And I think that helps them stick to their task. All, all I all I want to do is to sort of say, let's pluralize these roles. Let's be as let's be as um honoring of the player and the carer mm -hmm. uh, as much as much as the as the worker. So I, I I think I think I've managed to sustain that, but maybe the gamer generations will start to think, well, to be a player is to be a player in a game, mm -hmm. and for for to for to be in a game is to be in a world, and it's to be committed to the ethos of that world. So maybe organisationally, the idea of being a player will start to become less phobic or less scary or taboo-like, simply because people are. In, in a large part of their daily consciousness going through their life as gamers in organized spaces. So that eventually what I think will eventually translate into being that being a player is is having a kind of game-like approach to gameful approach to life as well as a playful approach to life. That, that's a really interesting observation because because of all the amazing books we've read, it's quite likely that it's the gaming industry that is going to help yeah. play proliferate mm -hmm. through into corporate uh, sensibility or, or corporate, yeah. corporate culture. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully going back and hopefully podcasts like this will get people to just point back into the amazing book that Pat Kane has written, like all the other people that can legitimize and all the, the researchers like Yak Pansep and all those other things. So it's, it's again, this technologically mediated environment and world that we live in is actually going to legitimize oh, play, yeah. which is such an, an ancient ancestral you know genetically encoded piece of mm -hmm. human existence so to understand what is play and i think that that's probably you know one of the biggest problems that we have i suppose you know with corporates it's mm. the perception of what play is you yeah. know play is not having my workers being productive mm. <laughs> basically for so many you know managers and leaders they want their staff to you know be productive and be on site whereas 
they think if they engage in play, then they're doing quite the opposite, but yeah. it's not. Well, it's not, but you know that I think there's an institutional advance that needs to be made or a foundation mm -hmm. advance that needs to be made. I think I think it's something I'm always intending to do and I should really get on with it, which is to kind of do do the kind of um it's not the prawn prawn cocktail circuit what would it be for gamers it would be it would be it would be the kind of the vegan sprout circuit yeah. i don't know or the, or the hot pizza circuit i don't know but to go around the major moguls and say you really need to be contributing if, if play and game is mm -hmm. your your job and, yep. and if it's your concern um Lego Foundation obviously is a great sort of precedent for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, but and I and I obviously appreciate Lego Foundation's investment in us and the scholarly investment in us. But it's almost like a think and do tank mm -hmm. about play and game um, as a kind of civilizational resource. That's that's mm -hmm. as grandiose as I would put it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have. And, and I would have thought that the, the 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 tech bros and certainly the video game people. The, given the amount of money they're making, yeah, and get and given given the given the the, the brutal fact mm. that um, as a result of planetary warming, we are going to be a more pandemic and viralized society. Mm. We are going to have to um, exist socially in what is called mm -hmm. the metaverse and in virtual spaces. That's we're going to have to be able to to yeah. switch and flip from re from real real time to virtual time and to, mm. and real space to virtual space um that there has to be a there has to be a kind of carnegie like yeah. or a F rockefeller foundation like or ford foundation or macarthur foundation like uh, humanistic impetus to uh pull together the research and explore how it is that we can uh, be mentally spiritually and culturally healthy in a game-defined, play-defined mm -hmm. world, yeah. um, because because I can see lots of ways in which it drives people completely nuts. Mm -hmm. And we already have the cautionary tale: Ready Player One is the classic mm. story, right? You know, where yeah. where, where every, everything is possible in his suit, but he's living in an entropic yeah. wasteland. You know, mm. we have to if, if people, but if but if nevertheless people are going to be driven indoors by biospheric disruption, they they, they need to be citizens, empaths. And humanists while they're indoors playing in their virtual worlds and yeah. not just manipulable, programmable, exploit, like, pointsifiable mm -hmm. uh, clicks, click clicksters. You know, yeah. so that so, so so to me, someone has to start it uh, and and be saying to the games the games industry, you need to do your Javier Carnegie moment or your mm -hmm. Rockefeller mm -hmm. Foundation moment on the thing on the very thing that you th you say you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Which which is hidden. Which is unseen, I would say, for the majority. If if you've got friends of ours in multinationals that have spent a heck of a lot of money creating play spaces mm -hmm. without the baseline understanding of what is play, why yeah. do we play? And Pat, with you and Cry, did you ever have a hidden track? I'm going to segue to our next piece. Did you ever have like one of those very cool a hidden track that everyone knew was there? Did you ever do that? On the B side yeah. of the twelve inch yep. of Labour or Love. We had two songs. One of them was a sensitive piano vocal ballad about my auntie passing from cancer. And the other one was a, a, a rousing track called The Successes of Monetarism, which was four minutes of silence. Oh, wow. 
send a message. <laughs> stick stick it to the manitis, as they say. It's <laughs> That's cool. Okay, okay. I don't know if any other guest is going to ever answer that yeah. like so definitively. <laughs> yes. Making a political statement, is sticking it to the society, <laughs> sticking it to the manitis. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason why we ask is we're now transitioning to, yeah, we're not, this isn't a hidden track. This is a very, very visible track as part of our, our podcast where we've, you know, we've kind of asked you to be a little bit playful and we've posted you some Lego and we were now going to pose you. Giving you some homework. To yeah, do a little bit of homework. Yeah. So, and again, thank you for it was doing brilliant this. Brilliant homework. Yeah, before actually we, you, you unpack your bills, how was the process for you? Well, you know, um, I'm sure you know, the, the deep archives of childhood mm -hmm. trauma and passion mm -hmm. that are unlocked yes. by <laughs> laying one's hands upon a nubbly Lego brick and seeing how both how buildable the world is and how mm -hmm. fragile those constructions can be, mm -hmm. which yes. I may just be about to prove as I fail to lift this off the floor. But you know, <laughs> but I I found it uh, to be. Um, kind of a rejuvenile experience for the first 30, 40 minutes. And then I totally got into the flow. Yeah. Um, and I'm now I'm now looking at it and I've made sure that I photographed it from all a manner of different angles. Right. Because I'll feel I'll feel bad if I have to sort of disassemble it. But but that's the point, right? Yes. Absolutely. The point, the point is that it all goes into the possibility mm -hmm. box. And uh, um but I thought your prompts were uh, excellent. Uh, very useful. So, mm -hmm. so when you're asking me to talk about this, please remind yeah. me of what yeah. your prompts were. So, I suppose the yeah. or the first bill, the first prompt was what inspires you about your work, what keeps you curious and motivated. All right. Well, here we go. I think already <laughs> things are falling off. Stop that. How many times have you seen this, you guys? But anyway, <laughs> here is the first one. The first one is this field contraption you'd be able to see at the front. I think I think my answer to that question was I like the idea that through um deep diving into play, through exploring play forms, that people will become new people. Okay. New new, new types of people. And so there you can see various ve vegetable human robot human yeah they're facing um, each other. Is that right? Yeah they're facing each hybrids. other. They're facing yeah. each other. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's a little crazy uh, gel flame there coming up you from see a very it old, the wheels, a very old yeah. mechanism. So that's my idea of what powers everything is this combination of mechanism and sort of flu uh, fluidity. Uh, so there, that was that. So that's the mach machine for new new mm -hmm. beings and for for me to make people happy with that profound. Um, Externally determined and self-determined rate of change, mm -hmm. and that's what that's what Lego Lego does for me. Oh, like awesome. And build number okay. two, or is that build it? Yeah, you got two. it. Build mm -hmm. number yes, two. It. How do you think right. your work helps people think and feel differently about the world? Yeah. So that, this, this, can you bring it back a little bit? Yeah. I'll bring Pull it back towards you and then yeah. tilt it down. There you go. There you go. Beautiful. Oh, think. Fine. <laughs> that's that's another discussion. Well, uh, again, that people are multiple, mm. uh, and and that they can they can develop in various forms. Uh, so each of these each of these um, bricks are sort of piled on top of each other and twisted as far as they can go. So it's like a kind of a fractal 
uh, pattern. And on top of them are little heads, heads with mm. flowers on them. Uh, there's a dog there as well. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out whether I had a last minute failure of nerve and put a big yellow patriarch at the top. Ah, who's okay. looking, looking, over, looking over the rest of them. I think that's a failure of nerve on my part, for which I apologise. Um, but so that's that's just the kind of the the, the plurality people realizing mm -hmm. their multiplicity and plurality as a mm. consequence of what I'm doing. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, so build number three, the final build was what curios curiosity or conundrum do you want to conceptualize with Lego? Yeah. Can you see that? Yeah, yes. perfectly. Yeah, perfectly. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, essentially, the conundrum I had my, have in my head, and I have it a lot, um, and uh, sometimes uh, antidepressants deal with it, and sometimes they don't, is the kind of paradox of human creativity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, so there's, there's the kind of the red shoot, permanent red spurt of human creativity, you know, sending dark influences off all over the place. Mm. Um, around about that creativity is all is all the, the, the context uh, for it. Uh, they, they do look like uh, buildings or waves somewhere between a building and a wave, but they are studied with uh, the dark the dark end of things as well as you can see from these kind of mm. black black curves that I found. Um, and that's 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 really a, I, I sort of my dark my dark uh, approach as a sort of play thinker is to think of and this is the darkest possible thought is that is that play could be maladaptive. <laughs> mm -hmm. It could actually be maladaptive. I mean, yep. in terms of the ingenuity that it drives, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, and we're, we're in that at the moment with AI, aren't we? Where mm -hmm. uh, people are saying as they said in the 70s in terms of genetic engineering we need to control this we need to damp it down we need to stop it for six months we don't know where we're going mm. but you know you can add to that um an extractive capitalism's effect on the planet you can add to that you know john von neumann and doing the cold war and then developing nuclear weapons um there's a certain um, there's a certain absurdity to human creativity that it takes us to what Toby Ord calls the precipice. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I struggle with whether that's uh, a patriarchal male thing, which is that's just what male power has done. And then I struggle with the idea that male power has an element of asocial playfulness to it, play just as sheer disruptive possibility. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of... Um, um is it to, to dwell on play is 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 to dwell on some virtuous things but it's also to dwell on the strangeness of us as animals mm -hmm. um and then the final thing i'll say to this is uh, i'm i've been gripped by sort of fermi's paradox you know, you know fermi's paradox mm -hmm. but the whole idea that the reason why we're so uncontactable in this vast teeming universe is because societies and civilizations trip themselves up with their own ingenuity you know the yeah. fact that they can manipulate matter at an atomic level so is it means that they blow themselves up at the, at the same stage because yeah. they're all going through the same now i'd like us obviously to beat fermi's paradox you know <laughs> that would be nice um and and the book i'm writing at the moment i'll put this down um uh super play uh is is, is a kind of meditation a short meditation on 20 years of the play i think 
yeah. but also this this dark aspect of human creativity and ingenuity. Um, and I think what I'd like, what I'm hopefully going to get to by the end of the book is, well, this is these are the structures and institutions and cultural norms that we consciously choose. We we actively consciously choose them in a way that has never been more urgent to actively consciously choose and shape mm -hmm. our society. Mm -hmm. um, and super play at the moment is seems to be the, the province of um, warlords, tech moguls, advert, advertising executives, mm -hmm. yeah. political technologists of all kinds. That's a top-down super play. A, bo a, a bottom-up super play is and sort of sort of an, uh, that science fictional aspect of the play ethic that I was mm -hmm. talking about that not only that it would be nice to have but that we probably need to have mm -hmm. we probably need to be in a, in a general situation disconnected from addictive consumer technology healthier in, in body thus healthier in mind mm -hmm. if we're going to get out of this pass uh, and the, the the one thing I take from my years of studying play is that it's not going to happen, or it could happen through religious hair shirtery. Yeah. You know, shut it all down, shut down your semiosis, simplify mm -hmm. your life, have this purer, less complex relationship to the world. That doesn't seem to me credible. You know, we can't go up, we can't go over, we can't go under. We have to go through mm -hmm. human creativity mm -hmm. um, to get to the other side. Given given the restless, uh, appetitive, imaginative metacognitive animals that we actually are mm. so we're going to have to develop a democratic a mass super play um and we're going to have to be super players in that in that sense uh, of, of of coping with the um scary complexity of the moment by being different kinds of bigger more multitudinous selves so at the time of 2004 when i wrote the book you know it's funny the book halfway through is broken in half by the fact of 2001, September the 11th. Yep. yep. You know, so I'm I'm writing the book and I'm thinking, here's this beautiful internet-enabled cultural society, cultural economy, and then along comes literally a bunch of terrorists who say literally in their message, the time for play is over, the time for death is upon us. Literally, that's what they mm -hmm. say. That's the mm -hmm. note that they leave behind. Um. And I, I, that was an early tremor to me, you know, of the of the stakes that are involved in thinking about what we do about human play, imagination, and creativity. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, it's not small stakes. It's not just a nice to have. It's not just about new products in the marketplace. It's mm -hmm. actually about what human beings do with their unnatural nature, mm -hmm. uh, which is to be aware aware of our existence. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what I'm interested in at the moment, and. I'm, but I'm not pulling on a hair shirt. I'm saying we have to, we're going to have to deal with human playfulness uh, at its core and in a sort of ontological way. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm. So you've led you've led me to my latest thing quite well with that last exercise. Well, thank you. Good. If if one of our aspirations is for software development teams to use Lego Series Play to develop a more playful world, essentially, yeah. I'd love if we had an anthem for this super play. <laughs> which was created by you so you use the lego method for this anthem and hue and cry get to number one globally listen i have to tell one. you what i'm not i'm not kidding you you, you there's a bit something a wee bit psychic about you because we're just about to 
finish off our first EDM record. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to and it. And it's it's a banger. Okay. Um, but it's been it's been a dialogue with machines. Right. You know, uh, uh, with a hundred different boxes, all of which do one waveform very very well. And we turn them on in the morning, and sometimes they're grumpy and they work. Sometimes they're overexcited; mm -hmm. they work too much. Uh, so we've basically been in this kind of ontological dance with mm. with not digital machines, but old old analog machines, things that oh. have valves in them. That wow. if you listen to their waveform, it's the same sound as Saturn makes or a quasar makes. So this is what we've been involved with in making our record. Is we've been literally been involved with the music of the spheres mm -hmm. for the new Hugh and Cry record. So it's either going to be wow. mutton dressed as lamb, which is always <laughs> possible, or we're off, that's our vehicle to be exploring um, Superplay uh, and, and a, a playful relationship with uh, machines that can enhance us rather than substitute us. That sounds really exciting. We wish you all the best. We've that. got a lot of yeah. show notes. We've got yeah. there's a lot of books <laughs> yeah. that are going to be put in there for the show notes for all our listeners. So Pat, look, it's it's been a, an honor to mm -hmm. have chatted with you and, and thank yeah, you likewise. for helping us, yes. you know, as a company arrive to where we are and where we're hopefully going to go mm -hmm. with all this. And thank you for being such a good sport as well, you know, doing the Lego builds. So we really Listen, the guy from the play ethic can't do the Lego bills. Yes. I don't know what, what, who he thinks he is. So just come come to patken.global and I'll talk I'll talk to you if you want. That's fine. Yes. Perfect. Thank you so much, Pat. It's so been a pleasure. Much, Pat. Take care. Bye Thank you so much. Bye-bye.